Hi everyone, my name is Daryl Payne, CEO of As Good As Gold Australia. And this evening, once again, I'm joined by my brother Brian. Thank you, Daryl. As Good As Gold. And this evening, we speak with Head of Research at Gold Money, Alistair McLeod. Good evening, Alistair. Good evening. Nice to be back again. Yeah, well, it's been uh, something like six weeks. And every time we speak with Alistair... We start the same way and say a lot of water has flown under the bridge since we (laughs) spoke last. And unquestionably, that has been the case again. Um, Banks, of course, in uh, disarray and gold and silver have responded accordingly. And uh, gold's up uh, about 300 an ounce over the last six weeks. And silver, about $100 a kilo, which is... uh, Pretty significant. Yeah, uh, it's, it's probably like rather than water under the bridge, it's probably like um, the Niagara Falls under the bridge, certainly in the last week. Yeah, I mean, look, we have been um, inundated, Alastair, and we're not on our own. I know the, the bullion dealerships in Australia, the mints are under enormous pressure. I mean, it's just everyone wants to get their money out of the bank. And uh, just a huge demand on us at the moment. Um, no one's got enough staff. We just uh, can't keep on top of it. Or we're no. battling to keep on top yeah. of it, I should Pretty say. Pretty well. Yeah. yeah. But uh, all good. We, we, we forge on. Um, what I want to do, if I can, Alastair, is refer to, firstly, some comments that Egon von Gray has made. Um, and I'd like to quote them because... Hardly anyone does it like Egon von Grayers. And um, so consequently, um, I'd like to share this with our audience. Egon says, I'd like you to comment on this. Egon says, uh, anyone who doesn't see what is happening will soon lose a major part of their assets, either through bank failure, currency debasement, or the collapse of all bubble assets like stocks, property, and bonds by... 75 to 100%, so it's massive. Mm-hmm. Many bonds will become worthless, and wealth preservation in physical gold now is absolutely critical. The solidity of the banking system is based on confidence. Well, we all know that. And as he says, with the fractional banking reserve, uh, banking system, sorry, highly leveraged banks only have a fraction of the money available if all depositors come in and ask for their money at the same time. So when confidence evaporates, so do the balance sheets of the banks and depositors realise that the whole system is just a big black hole. And this is exactly what is about to happen. For anyone who believes that this is just a problem with a few smaller US banks and one big, big ones, Credit Suisse, they need to think again. He goes on to say, the banks are falling like dominoes. Silicon Bank's 16th biggest US bank is gone. Signature Bank, 29th biggest, is gone. And yes, the First Republic Bank had to be supported by US lenders and the Fed by a $30 billion loan due to a run on deposits. But as he says, this won't stop. Now, the rot will continue as depositors attack the next bank, the next one, and the next one. Then we have the Swiss second largest bank, Credit Suisse, saved on the bell by an acquisition by UBS with the Swiss government backstopping the deal. 
So, Alastair, how do you think the banking sector is going to cope with this almighty new challenge? And what outcome do you believe this will lead to? <laughs> well, um, I find it hard to disagree with Egon, I must, I must admit. Um, I, I might um, look at the detail slightly differently from him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is no, I mean, what he says about, uh, you know, banks um, surviving, if you like, on confidence in their, um, in their balance sheets, um, in their operations and all the rest of it is absolutely right. I mean, credit is confidence. All credit is confidence. And uh, money doesn't circulate. And by money, I mean gold. I mean, you know, you and I hold on to gold. <laughs> That's the money. That, if you like, is the medium of exchange of last resort. Gresham's law, if you like, applies to it. And um, so, yeah, everything is credit. And credit depends on yeah. confidence. I mean, uh, you know, you you employ someone to, um, you know, decorate your offices. They will decorate your offices and then render you a bill. Now, basically, they are giving you the credit for their work until you settle the bill. And what do you settle it with? You settle it with more credit, which is effectively a transfer from your deposit at a bank to um, your creditors' uh, um, deposit at their bank. You know, you do a bank transfer or you do it in notes or whatever. But even bank notes are credit. I mean, we have... Um, uh, if you like, I mean, just, you know, the legal position is absolutely clear and it's still on our banknotes, though it's not, um, it's not honored in any way. Uh, you look at a, uh, a British banknote, a banknote from the Bank of England, and it's signed by the chief cashier who says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of, and then, you know, the value of the note. Now, that writing has got smaller and smaller every time they've issued new notes. So. <laughs> but it's still there. And actually what they're referring to is that the Bank of England promises to pay you one sovereign for every pound of face value of that note. Um, they don't do it anymore. But the promise is still there. And that is the legal position. So it is credit. I mean, I, I find it extraordinary that uh, some people don't think banknotes are actually credit. They 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 confuse mm. it with money. Mm. But there is a counterparty risk, and the counterparty risk is with, if you like, the central bank. And um, you are assuming the central bank can honour honour its commitments. Okay, we know that um, it's no longer prepared to release gold into into your ownership. They would rather hoard it themselves. I mean, why? You know, why is it that banks are increasing their gold reserves all the time? They're they're not giving it to us. No, (laughs) they're keeping it for themselves. So um, everything is credit. And uh, we are getting reminded of this uh, now that interest rates have risen substantially. That long term trend, which started four decades ago of declining interest rates, which have fueled a credit bubble. That's come to an end. And um, as far as the few bank failures we've seen so far, um, what it will have done to every other bank is it will have alerted the management to look at their counterparty relationships within um, 
the financial system and particularly counterparty arrangements within wholesale money markets. I mean, what, you know, you, you'll be sort of looking at, um, you know, which banks are risky. You'll be cutting all your lines. I mean, the way in which the interbank market works, which is the wholesale market, is that each bank will have um, a credit line maximums exposure. You know, it runs files on every bank. Uh, so, you know, Bank A here, when it looks at its dealings in the money markets with Bank B, it will it will have on the file for Bank B, and this is probably an electronic file now, you know, credit limit, um, $10 million, bank, you know, and that's it. So in other words, the dealers on, on your wholesale money market desk will not be permitted to go over that level. So what do we do? We reduce them all down now. You know, we're not prepared to get into counterparty um, relationships of, say, uh, more than $5 million where it was $10 million before. And the other thing I will be doing as a bank uh, uh, manager is I will be looking to eliminate um, positions with banks which I would deem to be risky counterparties. So I would tell my dealers in the wholesale money markets, do not under any circumstances deal with the following banks. Yeah. And um, what else would I be doing? I will be looking at um, uh, my balance sheet and I'll be looking at the maturity of the bonds that I hold. Um, if you like, as sort of substitutes for liquidity on the asset side and anything with the maturity of more than one year, I'll sell it if I can. If, if you know, if it's listed in the market, I'll sell it because, you know, at the moment you go out along the yield curve. The coupon that you're getting is less than the cost of funding. Why? Because the Fed and every other central bank has raised their basic uh, rates so that, um, you know, your cost of funding in the market has gone up and it's gone higher than the coupon return on your bonds. This is what um, this is what killed SVP. So, you know, you'll be looking at that. You'll be looking at loan arrangements. You'll be looking at. Um, you know, even even, um, uh, you know, long standing business customers who, you know, have uh, relied on you to provide, uh, you know, sort of short term liquidity overdraft facilities, if you like. Um, you'll be looking at cutting those back. You'll be looking at increasing the rate. Hmm. Um, you'll be paying huge attention to the bank's image in the market, because you do not want to find depositors moving out of your bank into another bank. So if you raise the deposit rate, you do not want to send a signal that the reason I'm raising my deposit rate is because I need your bloody deposit. Mm. <laughs> you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you can see, I mean, to summarize it, every bank is now in a position where instead of being driven by greed, whereby they expand their balance sheet, and they make 15, 20 times um, uh, uh, their margins at the shareholder level because of balance sheet gearing. They're now bringing it back in. They're reining it back in. And I would not want to see, I would not want to um, publish accounts now showing, uh, you know, shareholder leverage uh, relative to assets of more than, I don't know, sort of whatever, you know, 10 times, something like that. 
So if I'm 15 times or 12 times, I'm going to start cutting it back. Now, it's not just me doing this. I know that everybody, I mean, when I go to the, the banker's club for lunch, you know, this is the topic of conversation with all my <laughs> mates in the other banks. Yeah. What are they doing? They're doing exactly the same thing. So what we have is contracting bank credit. Now, contracting bank credit will expose the weaker banks. Of that, there is no doubt at all. So this bank crisis is not over with Credit Suisse and it's not over with Silicon Valley Bank. It is um, something which the Fed is trying to patch up. They have paid huge attention to trying to deal with this situation. They worked in the earliest stages with um, uh, uh, with the Swiss National Bank to ensure that there were swap lines sufficient to stop a failure, complete failure of Credit Suisse. Now, basically, they have managed to do that. They have lent on UBS. Yeah. And um, even though UBS refused to take them over before, they lent on them so hard that <laughs> UBS really had no alternative. You know, I mean, we're talking about one uh, member of the establishment <clears throat> getting another member of the establishment, in other words, a central bank getting the largest bank to rescue. It's rather like the Fed um, using JP Morgan uh, as its conduit into uh, the commercial banking network. So you can see that they pulled out all stops. But the interesting thing is that um, the Swiss National Bank made one mistake in all this, and that is um, they used their legislation, which they'd put in place uh, following the Lehman crisis, in the same way that every other uh, G20 uh, member nation did, um, to bail in the um, senior um, note holders. Now, these 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 senior notes are regarded as part of um, uh, the bank's capital. What happened was that shareholders get something out of the Credit Suisse takeover, but the bondholders got nothing. This turns company law completely on its head because the bondholders should actually be ahead of, you know, rank ahead of, um, uh, of equity holders. So this was, this, this was a big mistake. And, um, what it did was it shook, um, you know, the, the bank, um, the bank capital markets in Europe as a whole, because there were lots of these loans around and you begin to think, Oh my God, if the Swiss, um, if the Swiss national bank does that, then, you know, should we be owning Deutsche Bank's equivalent? Should we be owning Commerce Bank's equivalent or BNP's equivalent? Whatever. So you can see that this actually caused uh, shockwaves throughout Europe. And um, I think also it calls into credibility the Swiss reputation for probity and all the rest of it. And that's subject you might like to discuss next time you talk to Egon. <laughs> but um, you can see that there was a big mistake there. Now, what the Fed has also done for um, the Silicon Valley Bank, the Sil Silicon Valley Bank was, was, was a different problem from Credit Suisse. What they did was when interest rates were at the zero bound, um, they could borrow at close to the zero bound. I mean, you know, that they weren't paying their depositors any interest at all. So they could, um, you know, do whatever they wanted to do to attract deposits, depositors, which 
really came out of the tech industry, which was, you know, busy funding itself. Uh, you know, shareholders funds. Okay. You know, you get, um, hundred million dollars from, um, you know, a share issue. You bang it into SVP as a deposit. Okay. Until you spend it. Fine. Absolutely fine. But the problem was that the SVP took that money and invested it along the yield curve because at that stage, this, you know, the deposit money was costing them nothing. Yeah. And they were able to go out along the yield curve and pick up, say, a 10-year U.S. Treasury yielding one and a half percent. So, um, you know, that was the best deployment of money at that time for a bank, which was absolutely flooded with deposits. Mm. But then when interest rates rose, their profit and loss account showed that the cost of funding was in considerably higher than the coupon they were getting on their debt. And worse than that, the market mark mark to market value of the US Treasury 10 year note that they bought had fallen something like 30 percent. You know, they lost 30 percent of the capital on the balance sheet. And, um, you know, their problem really started when, um, you know, a few guys on the inside saw what was happening and thought this is not good. And so they started bailing out of their involvement with the bank, either as shareholders or as depositors or, you know, loan note holders or whatever. And um, it got to the point where this became rather obvious um, <laughs> and rather belatedly. Silicon Valley Bank decided that they need to go into the capital markets and raise a couple of billion dollars to shore up the balance sheet. And of course, the market suddenly said, Oh, whoa, hold on a minute. What's going on here? This bank's in trouble. You know, when you actually look at it, you can see that it's in trouble. And so that was the end of the bank. And this is not the only bank that did this. It is as a result, it's the unintended consequence of monetary policy of suppressing interest rates at the zero bound. And if you think this problem is, con is, is confined to America, forget it. I mean, in, in Europe, uh, it wasn't the zero bound, it was negative. In Japan, it is still negative. They're desperately sitting on rates, trying not to get, let them rise. Yeah. Because, uh -huh. uh, you know, the whole banking system starts falling over because they're all up in their necks up to their necks in in debt, which is falling in value, you know, government bonds, agency bonds, whatever it might be. So um, we can see the extent of the problem. The problem has not gone away. But worse than that, I return to um, the situation where you as a banker are looking at your own uh, situation. You have um, uh, sacked anyone who's thinking about greed <laughs> And you're now run by fear. So you are contracting bank credit. Now, what drives interest rates? Is it the Fed? Is it the Australian National Bank? No. It's the cost of bank credit. And we're talking about commercial bank credit. Um, you know, if I'm desperate, if I'm desperate to continue to fund my business, like, you know, I don't have enough income coming in to pay the bills and I'm relying on the bank to tide me over. I go to the bank and I say, look, I do need to borrow another million dollars. Um, the bank will probably, well, you say either of two things. First reaction will be because they're trying to contain their balance sheets. No, sorry, we can't help. Hmm. But if it appears to the bank that if they don't help just a little bit, then, you know, 
their their exposure to you could actually be completely undermined, they're going to turn around and say, well, you want a million dollars. We will let you have half a million dollars. But the interest rate is 15%. That is what is setting the interest rates now, not the central banks. So you can see that central banks have lost control of interest rates completely. And the consequence of contracting credit is to raise the cost of credit. And this is a point which people are only gradually beginning to wake up to. So um, the idea that uh, I mean, what the Fed has been doing and every other central bank is they've been telling us that inflation is disappearing. You know, it's it's, it's going to diminish and we're going to go back to two percent, maybe not. <laughs> In in a year, as we originally thought, but 18 months or two years, it's going to go back there. So there's no need for us to raise interest rates other than maybe just a little bit. That's the, the official line. But they don't have control over interest rates. And I can tell you, when people wake up to the fact that they've lost control of interest rates completely, and it's actually in the hands of commercial banks who are withdrawing credit rapidly from the system, you can see that there is a huge, huge shock yet to be understood. And I mean, so the question then becomes, how do you know what's, what what is the Fed going to do with this situation? Well, having lost control of interest rates, what they're trying to do through this bank term lending program thing, which um, they set up. Um, which I'd better tell you a little bit about. Basically, under this program, what they have said is that we will lend a bank, and it's only for banks, we will lend any bank on, you know, <clears throat> on our list, as it were, American banks or um, foreign banks, which ha- actually have um, an account with the Fed. We will uh, lend you for one year at um, a rate which is very, very close to the Fed funds rate um, money. And but we will need collateral in the form of government or agency debt. But we will take that in at its face value with no haircut. So what this means is that me as a banker, I can go into the market and I can pick up, um, say, a 10 year US Treasury with a one percent coupon. Probably at 80 cents on the dollar shove it into the Fed at 100 cents on the dollar, take the money and put it into Treasury bills at a similar rate or maybe even with a small margin over the Fed funds rate. Now, OK, this is not, um, a, if you like, a profitable credit deal in the banking sense. But what it is, it's a fantastic arbitrage between <laughs> market prices and what the Fed is prepared to take the stuff in at. And at the end of the year, I mean, you know, if I I mean, I could just simply match it. What I could do is I could say, I mean, I can do two things. I could say, uh, right. OK, I'm going to buy one year US US um, T-bill, which will yield me um, at the moment in this market just slightly more than the Fed funds rate. And I just match it. OK, I mean, it's sitting there sterile, but. Uh, you know, what else am I going to do with it? Am I going to, going to lend it to, you know, to Brian and Daryl? 
<laughs> you know, because, because they need the bloody money. No, I'm not. I'm going to, you know, I mean, this is, this is the safest thing for me to do. I mean, it's, it's manna from heaven for a, uh, you know, for, for, for a, for a bank. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll help defer the problem for banks that have the problem of, of, um, you know, the Silicon Valley bank. Um, but then the question is, what happens at the end of a year? Because this is, 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 is in essence an extension of quantitative easing. Because what the, I mean, basically what, what the central bank is doing is it's injecting credit into the economy, into, into, into the banks. I mean, so it's not circulating credit, but it's going into the banks. Um, it's exactly the same in, in, in a way uh, as, as um, quantitative easing. So we've seen what happens when they try and quantitatively tighten. I mean, it just screws up everything. So are they going to reverse this? Well, that's going to be an interesting one. I suspect that as time goes on, and this one-year facility sort of rolls, as it were, um, I think more and more banks will realise that actually they can take this stuff off the um, Fed at an interest rate which is uh, lower than the real rate of interest which is set between bankers and their customers, um, this could become actually a relatively attractive source of balance sheet funding. So what you've got is the replacement for the contraction of bank credit is the expansion of central bank credit. Now, when you expand central bank credit, that is the credit which all other credit is 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 tied to by value. And we know that when the central bank expands its balance sheet, the inflationary consequences are considerably more obvious to everybody than, I mean, inflation in the sense of loss of purchasing power of the currency, than uh, the fluctuations in commercial bank credit. Everything takes its cue from central bank credit. And changes in its quantity, changes, if you like, in the confidence uh, in the central bank. And remember that the central banks themselves have the Silicon Valley bank problem um, in spades. They've all bought their government bonds and agency debt at the very top of the market. And worse than that, they created the top themselves far higher then the markets, you know, under would have um, uh, created on, uh, under their own volition. So we have this situation really where the central banks themselves are, um, I mean, they're, they're stuffed full of uh, debt at totally the wrong price. The losses are unimaginable. And the Fed's response to this is to get in even deeper by lending money to banks, uh, to take debt out of the market and effectively suppress the yield curve to make funding affordable for the governments. I mean, that's the other side of it. You know, this, you can you can see the conversation. You know, how do we come up with a solution? Well, this is a solution that will get the you know the banks which have um, done what uh, uh, SLV SLB have done, get them out of trouble, and at the same time. Uh, if we manage to get banks into the market to buy up debt and increase its price, in other words, lower its yield, then it's going to be easier to fund the government deficit at a time when the foreigners seem to be 
leaving us like rats out of, oh no, we can't say rats out of a sinking ship. That would be, <laughs> but you can see the conversation. You can see how they've ended up with this. And it's rotten. It's completely rotten. Yeah. And the right description is the foreigners are leaving like rats leaving <laughs> a sinking ship. <laughs> so there we are. That, that is a potted version of what's going on. At least right. my potted version. Well, I, I'd like to just, you've mentioned the Fed a couple of times and I, I saw a US senator the other night grilling Janet Yellen, and she really did appear to be under pressure. And Janet doesn't perform all that well when under pressure. And he said, his question to her was, okay, we've, we've got banks at the moment that, you know, are looking very uncomfortable. What are you going to do? How well are you going to support these banks that are distressed? Uh, they're vulnerable. And she said, well, we're going to assist the big banks. Um, there is limited resources, but we will support the big banks totally. The senator said, well, okay, that's all right. But he said, I live rural. What are you going to do to support the smaller commercial banking sector? She said, I'm going, and with hesitation, but she said, we're going to support the big banks. Now, the point here is, and I saw Andy Sheckman make remarks on this as well, um, because he said, well, surely that's going to drive people away from the smaller banks because they're not going to be supported by the Fed. So they could easily, if there was a bank run occurred, easily go under. And, you know, that makes an enormous amount of sense. And I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, surely the Fed would realise this. They would know that. I mean, they're intelligent people, I think. (laughs) Um, Surely they would know this. So is this by design? Do they want or is their preference to see the small banks go under? Because at the end of the day, and I guess we get back to you know, CBDCs, the potential or banking digital currency. It's easier to manage an operation when you're working with a small group of big banks than it is uh, a vast array of much smaller banks. So what are your thoughts there? I mean, Andy Sheckman and Robert Kiyosaki were talking about this and they seem to be very disturbed at the time. You can normally tell when someone's got a quiver in their voice and they're saying, look, we're scared for Americans. In fact, Andy said, I'm scared for me. Mm. Do you think what we're discussing here should have Americans feeling scared at the moment? And the rest of the world? Undoubtedly, um, I mean, concerned, I would certainly say. Um, I, the first thing I would say about um, Janet Yellen's testimony is... Uh, she's not the only one with this problem. The problem is that as soon as any official in a banking situation, crisis such as this, uh, as soon as they open their mouth, mouths, I mean, what they say is taken, not the way in which they intended. Now, I have no doubt that um, Janet Yellen was sort of trying hard to appear responsible um, by not 
um, removing the possibility of uh, banks failing because you've got a duty to, you know, uh, protecting moral hazard, as it were, just if you see what I mean. So you can see in a sense, you know, they are very conflicted in terms of the public statements. Uh, you know, if you turn around and say, we will support every bank, um, irrespective of what happens. Now, that's actually what they've got to do. But for them to say it right. undermines um, everything. You know, it undermines the currency. The next thing they've got to do is yeah. got to go into the market, try and, you know, um, support the dollar, sell gold to try and drive, you know, drive down perceptions that uh, the, the currency is actually losing, losing credibility. Um, so... It's very difficult. It's not just Janet Yellen. I mean, you know, I can see this with statements from uh, other central bankers. Um, well, I mean, she's she's Treasury, yeah, obviously. But um, so I, I think it's I think that is the problem. You know, anything that is said, uh, you know, people then sort of logically deduce. But um, you know. Do we actually believe what these people say? No. I mean, it's always been wrong to believe anything a government official says. So, um, you know, in that sense, uh, what she was saying, I think, was for public consumption. Let's put it that way. And those of us with a slightly closer um, uh, analysis of the situation should not take what she says at face value. I think the problem is slightly different, and that is um, having enacted bail-in laws um whereas before there would be no question that it would be bailout and the fed learned from uh letting lehman go that you know this is not a good idea um i think that central banks generally do appreciate that they have a duty to ensure the integrity of the commercial banking system which really means you you know that confidence factor you're referring to earlier daryl that's something that you've got to preserve at all costs. And you cannot, you cannot be in the business of selecting which bank is going to fail and which is not. So, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, I think the Fed realizes this. And this is why they, you know, one of the reasons they've taken the action, uh, to stop other Silicon Valley bank failures, uh, you know, banks which have instead of been in the credit business have been in the investment business rather like a hedge fund mm. if you like uh you know um borrowing at one rate to invest at another rate and finding that the whole thing goes upside down so so uh yeah i mean i think the room for error in this is if a central banker somewhere along the line actually hasn't got the message that you, you know, it is in, in a, in, at a time of banking crisis, it is, uh, the primary function, um, above anything else for a central bank to ensure the integrity of the commercial banking system. I mean, if you want to talk about whether, you know, we want to save, um, larger banks in the long run at the expense of smaller banks, that is an issue for tomorrow, whatever its merits or demerits. But today you have got to ensure that no bank fails. And but the problem is the politicians can't say that. And Janet Yellen is now a politician. So she was really between a rock and a hard place. So that's my analysis of, of that. Yeah, I was about to say that uh, they're damned if they do and they're damned yeah. if they don't. But that's the position yeah. they've got put themselves into, really. Well, 
before I add to this, and it's uh, we're still on the banking situation, but the one thing I have learned uh, over many years, and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with me, Alistair, you might want to make a comment, but for the Fed or any central bank to bail out banks or other financial institutions, the money has to come from somewhere. And for the life of me, I do not understand why people don't understand the fact that where does this money come from? I mean, we're not talking a hundred million. We're not talking a thousand millions of billion. We're talking many, many billions of dollars to bail out somebody yep. or a bank or an enterprise that's gone nearly bankrupt. Now, to me, this the the printing of money, which has to be printed to bail out the the uh, the um, the ones that go belly up has to cause inflation. It, to me, it can't. It can't be anything else. So I think there's going to be inflation for a long, a long, long time to come. Just that point, Alistair. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean the way to look at it is actually we're not talking about money. We're talking about credit, and you yeah. can expand credit. Um, exactly. You know, expand it and contract it as much as you want. I mean. The reason I drew the analogy between, you know, you get someone to decorate your 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 uh, offices there, um, you know, I mean, that's credit at its most basic level. And the banks are just formalizing that credit and they're given a license to do, to do so. Um, but what we are seeing, and as to your point, Brian, is that um, the um, creation of credit upon which an economy really works is shifting from. Um, the private sector to government in the form of central banks. And that is destructive of the value of the currency because um, the credit creator is also the issuer of the currency. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, and, and um, you know, it, it is, that's what's going to happen. Now, the people who understand this last are always the domestic users of the currency. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, if you look at uh, the dollar uh, since 1971, it has lost 98% of its purchasing power against gold, which is the real money, legal money, by the way. Um, and uh, yet we still use dollars. We still have dollars in reserve for those things that we need to rush out and buy at a moment's notice or whatever. Or we still have the availability of credit, um, you know, payable in dollars and so on. So. Um, we don't realize this as users of the currency immediately. We might, if we're well educated financially, understand the implications as far as um, our finances are concerned, our financial activities rather than our day to day purchases of goods and services. But the people who really do realize these are the foreigners. If the foreigners own a lot of your currency and they see what the central bank is doing, what do they do? They get the hell out of it. Yeah. And the point about um, uh, the dollar is that the foreigners, and this is according to the U.S. Treasury's own figures, own roughly 30 trillion dollars of financial assets and cash. And the cash element is a bit under seven trillion dollars. But the rest is sort of stuck into bonds, which they have been reducing. I mean, you know, the Chinese in particular have been <laughs> cutting out of U.S. Treasuries. <laughs> Uh, and um uh i think it's around about 12 trillion um in in um uh, you know, portfolio investment so there was all that diversification as well 
Uh, and uh, but then the question is, well, if the foreigners start selling the dollar, what are they going to buy? Well, I mean, obviously, they buy their own currencies. Um, the reason for doing that is not that your own currency is any better than the dollar, but you're accounting in your currency. So what you need to do is to try and control the risk. So at least, you know, if you own your own currency in accounting terms, you're not going to make a loss. Whereas you could make a loss in dollars. And particularly if you see the Fed go, um, you know, fly off the handle in terms of um, expanding its credit. So that's the one thing. But the, I think the the one area which um, is really underappreciated, I think, is commodities as a whole. And I think you'll find that, uh, you know, particularly China and, and um, you know, Russia and the whole of that sort of Asian area, which um, is now all um, under the, um, if you like, uh, control of Russia and China, uh, um, they're just moving towards commodities. And Putin has said as much. You know, he said, why own dollars and euros when, I mean, when he made the speech back in, uh, I think it was June last year, uh, in St. Petersburg to 81 official foreign delegations. He said, why own um, dollars and euros when um, the, uh, you know, when the, their purchasing power is going down at the rate of six or seven percent um, annually? Yeah. And why own them when, um, you know, the Americans and the Europeans can just cut you off and stop you, stop you using them, yeah. you know, which is what happened to Russia. The message was loud and clear. And he also said, why do you store your gold in their vaults? You know, you've got to get out. You know, I mean, the message was absolutely loud and clear. And I think um, what it means is that uh, we will see um, a substantial move out of fiat currencies into tangible, tangible commodities, things like that. And as to the point as to, um, you know, how that those commodities are going to be deployed, I mean, China and Russia and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are on, uh, they are embarking on an industrial revolution, which is far larger than anything we have seen in our history. Um, its importance is not as great, perhaps, as the British Industrial Revolution, but in terms of the numbers of people who are going to have an enhanced and uh, uh, enhanced standard of living, the increase of wealth and everything else is, I mean, we're talking about 3.8 billion people being fed by uh, commodities in Africa for a further billion people and also perhaps another half billion from Latin America. Uh, you know, why, I mean, this is an interesting one. Why are Argentina, I'm probably wandering off subject a bit, but... <laughs> Why are Argentina and Brazil now looking at setting up a joint currency? Yeah. Well, they realize their currencies aren't fit for purpose in this new world. So they need to have something which is separate from the political concerns for which they use their domestic currencies, like, you know, <laughs> printing pesos to to or reals in, 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 in Brazil in order to finance the government's um, needs and wants. Um, we have a separate currency which we can use just purely for trade. Well, the answer is link it to gold. I, you know, what's, so what's the problem? So you can see that escape routes from a collapsing fiat currency world, which is our world, 
these escape routes are going to be created as well as um, the need for the commodities, the stockpile commodities, because of what's going on in Asia. So this is, I think, a very important time in our lives as to, um, you know, the whole thing. We've got a collapsing banking system in the West. And, you know, the amazing thing is that um, I was looking at the share prices of the Chinese um, global systemically important banks. And while ours were collapsing, theirs were rising. Yeah. I thought that told the whole story, really. <laughs> anyway, there we go. Yes, it does tell the whole story. Before we go on to the subject of the gold price, and we're not, I won't be talking about what you think the price will be, but it's, yeah, there will be some points on that. But just on this last one before we move, um, it's been said that the market is expecting up to four interest rate drops by the end of 2023. I, I just can't believe in that. But your thoughts, do you think there are going to be any uh, interest rate drops uh, between now and the end of the year? Uh, well, uh, you know, the, what we're looking at is, is um, you know, investment strategists, central bankers, whatever, who are all Keynesian. Uh, they don't understand that the relationship between interest rates and prices um, will change changes in interest rates and prices is actually immaterial. It, it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. Mm. Um, so we, you know, we're, we're, we're starting off from a point of myth, if you like. So that's, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is that, uh, we can see that, uh, the pressures for prices to continue to rise, um, you know, the previous pressures. I mean, for example, the, the the sudden increase in oil prices uh, when the Russians invaded that is no that that is now behind us and it's all statistically falling out of the back end. On top of that, things like supply chains are beginning to work again and so on. So you can see that the production um, cost pressures are diminishing a bit. So we can see that um, you know it could be. Uh, if you're in, live in the world of wishful thinking, it could be that, um, you know, those wonderful people at the Fed and the Bank of England and the, you know, <laughs> and the Reserve Bank of Australia, whatever, um, are right that inflation is going to come down and therefore interest rates are going to come down. So yeah, that's, that's why, um, you know, people expect interest rates to come down. Right. Okay. But, you know, here is the shock. And, you know, I make this point time, time again, interest rates are not being driven by central bank policy. They're not being driven by uh, the commercial bank's attitude to lending. Mm. And you're not going to see the drops. I mean, I don't give a damn what happens to the so-called inflation rate. Um, If if commercial banks are uh, withdrawing credit from the economy and they're over leveraged and you can see that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because... um, not only are your banking relationships in the wholesale market falling apart, but you know that bad debts are mounting everywhere. Um, they're mounting everywhere, partly because of interest rates have already gone up um, unexpectedly. Ha ha. Um, but also because you can see from your own intelligence in terms of talking to uh, you know businesses and so on and so forth that, um, you know, things things are you know, the economy is going into contraction. Do you want to be lending into a contracting economy? No, you don't. So you're going to continue 
with your anti-greed, um, <laughs> more uh, driven by fear um, approach of trying to reduce your balance sheet. Mm. We can see that. And that, I think, is, you know, the way I'd answer your question is actually it's got very little to do with the inflation rate now. It's all to do with what happens with credit. That's right. the thing we've got to focus on. Well, Darren, I can certainly um, add to your commentary there. There's a lot of truth because a long time ago where we were in manufacturing, so we've been in bullion, we've been investing in bullion for 25 years, but some of that investment time was when we were in manufacturing. But we had a couple of years, not all businesses have got growth, you know, like a staircase, you know, get some downers every now and again. And I know when we did approach the bank, well, it was about 25 years ago, we approached the bank because we needed some extra money. Oh, they'd give it to us. It wasn't, it wasn't at a low rate. It was at a very high rate. So, yeah, what you're saying is perfectly true. They're not going to be giving businesses a heap of money at a low rate. It's going to be very high. Okay. Yep. Okay. The gold price. Okay. The gold price for the end of 2023 has been tossed around by many analysts, including a large bank, at about $2,500 US an ounce gold. Right? Uh, that's equivalent in Australia. That's about $3,750 an ounce. Now, with the present banking debacle we have at the moment, would you consider this price of 2500 US an ounce to be on the low side? Because I would. You know, to be on the low side. And what, and, and with silver at 84 to 1, do you think that's going to come down as well? On those two points, what do you think? Well, <clears throat> I always look at it the other way around. Um, I don't look at the gold price as being um, something that's rising. I look at the purchasing power of the currency in which mm-hmm. you're pricing it going down. So cool. my assumption always is that gold has a constant value um, because that's history. Now, I know it is I know in a crisis that is is wrong. And I know that in a crisis, what you find is that people just get the hell out of the things that are falling, you know, like credit and, uh, you know, will buy gold. So the purchasing power of gold at that stage measured in goods and services does rise. That's the key key Mm -hmm. point. So what we're looking at at the moment is at what speed? I mean, this is the question really that I think um, uh, you are asking, in effect. At what what is the speed of the deterioration of the purchasing power of the dollar of whatever, whatever? And I think of the fiat currencies. We're beginning to see that their purchasing power. There are reasons to expect their purchasing power to actually fall quite significantly. Now, as to whether that's going to happen in the next month or the next year. Um, you know, is, 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 is a matter, if you like, of, um, how the future unfolds. Um, I mean, looking at the way these currencies, um, are going, um, the way credit is going, I can see their purchasing power falling, uh, very, very rapidly. Um, once it starts going, it will start going very, very rapidly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, whether, whether this means that the dollar price of gold goes to two and a half thousand or whatever, you know, I'm sure in time it will. But yeah. don't ask me to put it. But, you know, really what we're looking at is not the gold price rising at this stage. But what we are looking at is, deterioration is the, US dollar. The, the, the deterioration of the, the of the fiat currencies. Mm-hmm. I think that's the key point. I noticed that. Um, and Australian dollars, um, you know, gold is currently 2,940. 
Mm. New high. Yeah. No, it's not a new high for gold. It's a new low for the, the, the <laughs> Australian currency. Yeah. It, it doesn't buy much. You know? My wife keeps on telling me I can't buy much with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, um, uh, you asked the question about silver. Um, as the purchasing power of currencies fall, what tends to happen, um, the relationship between gold and silver, is that the gold-silver ratio comes down. Now, um, if we go back in history, uh, silver has been very much the poor man's money. I mean, you know, I, th- I think actually a better description of it is, I mean, if you go back to the uh, gold standard, in it, which was set up um, under Lord Liverpool in 1817, uh, silver was legal tender for amounts of up to two pounds. We're talking about coin and the coinage was pure silver. It was sterling silver, which is what, 92 percent or something. Um, and uh, so that was the extent of the legal tender, if you like, under that arrangement. But, I mean, it's it's been legal tender, um, accepted as money elsewhere. I mean, I remember when I first went to the Persian Gulf back in the 60s, Maria Theresa dollars were still circulating as money. Um, and it was money that they used, you know, when tourists came along and uh, were prepared to pay over the odds they would melt them down and turn them into into you know signet rings or whatever whatever (laughs) but it was basically money so um yeah it's not so long ago that it really was money and i see that the indians have been buying silver hand over fist um it's also got the industrial use so i would say that in terms of its industrial use it's probably significantly undervalued it is not priced as money. For it to be priced as money, what we are looking at, I think, is a return towards the gold-silver ratio levels, which pertained when it did circulate as money, even though it was only money for amounts of less than two pounds. Remember, two pounds is two sovereigns. That today, two sovereigns is 800 pounds. So we're talking about silver being um, circulating as money to up to 800 pounds in today's money. Right. today's currency rather so you can see that um yeah and i think what happens is that um when uh the gold price rises measured in fiat currencies then the price of silver rises at roughly twice the rate or slightly less than twice the rate so if we see um the uh dollar price of gold going up to say two and a half thousand dollars something like that then i would expect the gold silver ratio to fall quite significantly i don't know i mean you can you can almost do a mathematical calculation but um uh you know the the, the it, for those looking looking just to sort of profit if you like in dollars rather than regarding gold or silver as money then uh you know you might see the conditions move so that um they become uh, you know, the gold-silver ratio falls to something like 30 or 40. Now, that would mean an outperformance of silver versus gold, uh, you know, roughly roughly two times. So um, I think from a purely monetary point of view, it's actually not a bad idea to have some silver because um, when um, paper currencies really do collapse, um, you're going to need um, what they call poor man's money. You know, yes, the small right. change, yeah. small change up to what, $1,500 or whatever it is, <laughs> whatever the equivalent of two, 
you know, two pounds in 1817 and the UK was. Yeah. Yeah. An ounce of silver will buy a lot more than what it will today. A lot, lot more. Mm. Fantastic information. Once again, I mean, Mm. we were, we've got about another dozen questions to ask you, Alastair, but uh, we'll have to save it till another time. And (laughs) but uh, once again, I mean, just fantastic information. I mean, it's, it reminds me so much, and we keep referring to Charlie Tremendous Jones, of course, who uh, used to say, in 10 years' time, you're going to be in exactly the same position you're in right now, apart from two things, people you meet and the books you read. And connecting with Alastair McLeod, I mean, anyone who's watching this interview tonight should take advantage. It should be so obvious. Take advantage of people like Alastair McLeod's knowledge and because you will be a much smarter person in the process. Uh, And we've been very fortunate, Brian, that we've been able to connect with people like Alastair. Uh, Peter Daniels has been a great mentor to us. Um, But, you know, the interesting thing about all of these people, and whether it be Egon Von Graz, Jim Sinclair, or uh, Jim Rickards, they are all great supporters of gold. Peter Daniels introduced us to gold many years ago. And he was one of the, he was the number one real estate entity in uh, the state of South Australia and big, a big player in Australia. But he said, you've got to own gold. You must own gold. And his whole family, Alastair, the two sons, the daughter have now educated their children on um, holding gold uh, for all the things that we talk about yeah. all the time. That's 25 years ago when we uh, were first introduced to the concept of holding gold. Yeah, so. yeah, and and, uh, and it's been a, a huge asset for us. Uh, we've fully taken advantage of that knowledge. But I plead with the, the viewing audience, take heed and listen closely to what Alastair had to say tonight. Replay it a dozen times if you have to and just get the message because it's really important now more than ever before. It's important to own gold. Um, Egon von Graz, of course, got a pretty good response to that, hasn't he, Brian? <laughs> Whenever asked the question, how much should I invest in precious metals? What does he say? What does he say? Whatever you cannot afford to lose. And yeah. it's a darn good answer. It's a yeah. wonderful answer. Yeah. That's how much you put in the, in, in the precious metals. So, Alastair, thank you so much. Really appreciate your input again, as is always the case. Uh, we'd also like to thank our audience uh, for our viewers, subscribers, for supporting this channel. And so until next time, if we all stay well, stay focused, goodbye for now. Goodbye for now. <laughs>